You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. How does your political perspective influence your view of climate change? Texas Governor Rick Perry maintains that government regulation is hindering, not helping energy innovation. We're driven by a free market capitalistic system. We must preserve, we must protect that if we're going to find the solutions to these issues. While leaders in the Latino Green Movement think that preserving the environment is linked to issues of inequality. Latinos are like any other Americans. They want a good job that doesn't kill you. Uh, they want you know, good education for their kids. They want a safe community. Multiple facets of the climate debate Up next on Climate One. Climate One is a conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. These Climate One conversations were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Today, our guests will look at how population growth and the growing Hispanic vote are related to climate change. First, the role of big government in energy. I'm pleased to be joined by Rick Perry, who has served as governor of Texas since 2000, taking over when George W. Bush became president. Perry himself may be eyeing another run for the White House in 2016. Here's our conversation about government empowering America's economy. Governor Rick Perry of Texas, we have a lot of questions about energy and a lot of other issues. Uh, first, one question from the audience is, how can the Republican Party ever hope to appeal to intelligent people when accepted science such as evolution and climate change are rejected by the leaders of yeah, the party? Yeah. Here, here's a, I think, you know, here's what I think is a, a more important issue when it comes to climate change. Uh, my great concern is that policies that are put in place in Washington, D.C. that can strangle the economy of this country, jeopardize our ability to innovate. America has always been about creating innovations to address challenges that we have. And then we sell those innovations around the world. But small businesses are overregulated, corporations are overtaxed, Cities from Stockton to Detroit are going bankrupt. And because of all of this, the American dream is in jeopardy. And I think that's the bigger question, not fighting amongst our, our, ourselves or trying to, uh, to, to push people off into corners, but to recognize that America and America's innovation, both the private sector working with the public sector, and coming up with the answers to these great challenges that we have relative to uh, the environment. That's our role, and we cannot do it if we strangle our economy, if we put our economy in jeopardy. So for me, that's substantially a a bigger place for us to spend our time and effort rather than trying to divide this country into, you know, you're wrong and you're right, or vice versa. I am a huge believer that our country will be stronger economically. I think our country will be happier. I think our country will function better. If we get back to the principles that our founding fathers put in place, particularly dealing with the Tenth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment says that the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution or reserved for the states or the, or the individuals. And our congressmen and women, our United States senators, can start making America more competitive by devolving economic policies, education policies, health care policies, social policies, 
devolve those back to the states and let the states make those decisions because we're a very diverse country. And I get it. Not everybody wants to be a Texan. Not everybody believes like I do. Is there a, a role for government in energy, or is that something that should be left entirely to the private sector? No, I mean, the, listen, I'm not an anti-government person. I'm just a small government person. I think government has a role, but I'm not sure why we need a Department of Energy that is as broad and as big and as cumbersome as the one that we have. A big part of the Department of Energy is national security yep. and nuclear. America's and they have nuclear some, and, and they have, listen... We have agencies of government at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level that play a role. I just think we've, we've allowed our government to get so big, so cumbersome, so layered that um, it's, it's lost in too many areas its focus and its ability to be efficient. There are obviously great and good innovation that come out of the Department of Energy. But uh, I will suggest to you that uh, we cannot afford the size and the scope of the government that we're paying for today. Are you in favor of the elimination of energy subsidies? I am a fan of subsidies. So we put subsidies into place to to bring the wind energy uh, into the state of Texas. We help subsidize the cost of bringing uh, that power from far west Texas where the wind is generated to the population center. Now, once those mature, uh, they can be removed. But uh, from the standpoint of, you know, a a subsidization for uh, oil and gas drilling, I think there is a role for that to play. And if, if we are Canada or Mexico decide to use some subsidies to get people to uh, develop more energy in this North American region, then that's appropriate. George Schultz, he's one of the elder statesmen of the Republican Party. He's a big advocate for clean energy, takes climate change very seriously. His answer is a carbon tax, pricing carbon pollution. Shell Oil already has a, a shadow carbon price. When they allocate capital, Shell Oil says, we're going to think it's 35 or $45 a ton of carbon. Oil companies are already doing this. Some economists support that. Most elected politicians do not. Hmm. Uh, but do you see any hope or future for a price on carbon, whether it's a tax or any other way, to help drive innovation? I think we have, I think we have enough resources in this country, if they're allocated properly, to fund the innovation that's in place. I don't, I'm, I'm not a big believer that you have to uh, go raise a new tax to go pay for. Um, we haven't done that in our home state. Matter of fact, we have grown quite a substantial economy over the course of the last 14 years without raising new taxes. We've done it by growth. So I, I, my answer is no. Uh, Just joining us today, our guest at the Commonwealth Club of California is Texas Governor Rick Perry. I'm Greg Dalton. Doing nothing on climate also can hurt business. Insurance companies are very concerned about droughts, crop losses, severe weather storms. There's more Mm billion-dollar losses. In fact, there's something called uh, the Climate Declaration. This is General Motors, Microsoft, Intel, Unilever, Starbucks, Disney have called for a coordinated effort to combat climate change, in part because of the opportunity, in part because it's hurting business today. So what's their solution? I mean, They didn't agree. They, those companies didn't okay. agree. They just so said listen, something don't, should be done. Please don't stand on the sideline and tell me you need to do this and don't have a, 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 a solution. We're driven by a free market capitalistic system that has a profit motive. And I will suggest to you that is what we must maintain. We must preserve. We must protect that if we're going to find the solutions to these issues. So um, I am quite bullish on the future of the globe. I'm quite bullish about the, 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 the solutions to our environmental concerns are somewhere in a brilliant, thoughtful mind in America, and we need to promote that every day. 
what areas of energy innovation are most exciting and most promising to you? Electrical storage, because you're going to need a lot of electricity to power those Tesla cars that are going to be built in Texas. So battery storage, electric battery, storage. Battery storage, area. PVs, all of the photovoltaic that we have is, is uh, there's substantially uh, fascinating work on the, uh, um, on, on the biomass side. Uh, these uh, very small nuclear uh, uh, facilities that are, they're in theory now, but small from the... Small modular reactors. Five, small right. modular reactors, I mean... There is so much going on, but I think in the, uh, on, the, on the solar side, there's some really fascinating things. Uh, we're starting to see the ability to make some uh, PVs that are uh, flexible and go across the top of uh, um, different structures. I mean, I think some of the most exciting places in the country uh, deals with all of the different energy um, projects and innovation that's out there. There's a lot of concern about water and fracking. Texas isn't a big drought, but there's still fracking going on. Fracking's water intensive. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the need for water and the need for energy and the danger of potentially poisoning, poisoning wells? There is some contamination that has happened. That's not correct. There's... No, sir, there is not one, there is not one legitimate study that has shown contamination of groundwater by fracking. In Texas. Okay, maybe not in, I don't know about Texas. In some places people... I'm I'm telling you, we do a pretty good bit of fracking in in Texas. So my point is, I I don't want to call you completely out up here on the stage, but I'm going to call you out. So let's, you know, we really need to be truthful about this. This is not the fact. Now... For people interested outside Texas, ProPublica did a report (laughs) on what they claimed was a thousand instances of groundwater contamination. Not sure if Texas was the case, but in other states, ProPublica, Abram Lusgarten, has done some reporting on yeah. that. The question you ask, and let me, let me get to that, is about water. Uh, I, I grew up on a dry land cotton farm, so I understand about water and the lack of water and the importance of water. Now being the governor of the second largest state in the nation, the most dynamic uh, economy in this country, we have major challenges with power, with transportation infrastructure, and with water. All of those are major challenges for the state of Texas. And over the course of the last few years, we have addressed those to do additional reservoirs, uh, also desalinization, and then major transportation. Texas actually has enough water. It's just in the wrong places. Uh, So being able to move it and and transfer it to the the right places. So... um, the hydraulic fracking, and as, as, as much of it has gone on and as water-intensive it is, has only, it only accounts for 1% of, of the water usage in the state of Texas. So, um, and, and the University of Texas, they have a novel membrane that reduces fracking water consumption by 50%. That's the innovation that I'm talking about, whether it's our universities, whether it's the private sector, whether it's private-public partnerships working together. To promote that innovation, to come up with the challenges that we have as a people. Another question for the audience for Texas Governor Rick Perry. Uh, do you support President Obama's all of the above energy strategy? Well, I don't know what the president's all of the above energy strategy is. Um, because if he has an all of the above energy strategy, then the XL pipeline w- would be opened up. We would be uh, substantially uh, more engaged in the uh, exploration of uh, hydrocarbons on federal land. So I don't think the president has a, in, in reality, he does not have, uh, a, I'm not sure he has an energy strategy, frankly, uh, at all. Um, but I do know this. The fastest way to rev up the economy is for America to produce all forms of energy. Hundreds of thousands of jobs can be created if we unleash energy exploration across this country. And over the last five years, all of the economic metrics are headed in the wrong direction. More Americans are out of work, more Americans in poverty, more Americans on food stamps. Because if this country is not more competitive, we're going to lose our edge. We're going to lose our ability to be innovators. And the solutions to the challenges that face this country are going to be lost.
have been discussing government's role in America's energy economy with Texas Governor Rick Perry. You're listening to Climate One. One of the best ways to stabilize the Earth's climate is to reduce the growth in global population. Fewer people means less carbon pollution and less climate risk. But energy experts and environmentalists often don't want to discuss population. Reproduction is a polarized social issue and not their thing. My next guests are not afraid to talk about condoms and climate in public. Alan Weissman is author of Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth. And Malcolm Potts is an obstetrician and professor of population and family planning at the School of Public Health at the University of California at Berkeley. Here's our conversation about a crowded and steamy planet. Alan Weissman, let's start with you and say how you came to write this book about the population story. It's such a loaded topic. It's one that makes us really uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of somebody telling us how many kids to have. Like any other organism, we're designed to make copies of ourselves. So there's just something unnatural about the idea of having to limit that. Nevertheless, there's no question that we have become far more numerous than nature ever intended for one species to be in relationship to its environment. And I had to look at this to understand what it's about, and that's how I ended up writing Countdown. Malcolm Potts, you're an MD, so tell us a little bit about how you came to this. I came from being an obstetrician and practicing in England, and I began at the postnatal visits when I delivered a baby to offer women family planning advice. And often they would say, I was just going to ask you that, doctor, which means I never would have asked you, but thank you for bringing it up. (laughs) And for the rest of my life, has been committed to giving women choices. And my experience from all over the world is when you respect women and give them choices, they will have relatively few children. And we've done wonderful things to reduce infant mortality, and we've been blind and stupid and curious about not offering people family planning at the same time. Iran is a very interesting story. Uh, You open your book with a quote from Ayatollah Khomeini about vasectomy. Alan Weissman? In 1979, when the Islamic Revolution took place, within a few months, Iran was attacked by Saddam Hussein. So first, the Ayatollah, he asked every fertile female in Iran to do her patriotic duty and get pregnant to help build a 20-million-man army to fight off the invaders. And for eight years, they held Iraq to a truce. And finally, when that truce was brokered, an economist, he was the head of planning and budget for Iran, realized that they were going to have a terrible problem. All these kids that were born during that population burst, they were going to be needing jobs, and the economy wasn't going to be able to provide them all. And he warned the Ayatollah that we're going to have a nation full of particularly frustrated, angry, unemployed young men, which is a very destabilizing thing for a country. So they decided to institute a family planning program. So they did four things. First of all, Ayatollah Khamenei, he issued a fatwa saying there's nothing in the Quran that says that you can't use any form of birth control from condoms all the way up to an operation for males or females. Second, they made all of those birth control methods available throughout the country. The only thing that was obligatory was premarital classes for everybody, either in the mosque or in a health center. Among other things, they talked about how much does it cost to raise, feed, clothe, educate a child. But the fourth thing that they did may have been just as important as the other three, and that was they encouraged women to stay in school. And Iran brought themselves down to replacement rate, according to some calculations, a year faster than China. And what are some countries where there's troubling population trends? Pakistan is clearly a a disaster. I mean, it's had an incompetent family planning system. It never respected people. It never made things universally available. It was very medically conservative. You know, it's very difficult to understand how important medical conservatism is in holding back access to family planning. Family planning is a choice. You don't come to me as a doctor saying I've got a disease called too many children. Family planning is not telling people what to do. It's listening to what they want. Is there a reason why prescriptions for birth control pills exist in the United States? or could Absolutely they? not. I mean, we should take the pill off prescription tomorrow. How many people in this room know that if you take oral contraceptives for a few years, 
you will halve your rate of ovarian and uterine cancer later in life. You know, this is an extraordinarily safe drug. You can't commit suicide with it, unlike aspirin. So it's an extraordinarily miraculous drug. And the only thing that keeps it on prescription is big farmers' greed. Alan Weissman, let's talk about the climate part of this. With growing population, what is, what is the connection between climate and population? This is pretty elementary. All of our environmental issues are caused because of what we do to the environment. And we've jet-propelled society. We can do all these incredible things. We have electricity, but we also have these waste products, and they float up into the atmosphere. And the more of us demanding this stuff, the more carbon dioxide is up there. There's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now than there has been in three million years. And the last time there was this much in the atmosphere, the seas were 80 to 100 feet higher than they are today. This is what we are doing. As those temperatures go up, they are going to affect the amount of food that we can control. For every one degree centigrade, crop yields are going to go down about 10%. And we're already headed beyond two degrees. And in that same time, by the middle of the century, we're scheduled to add about two and a half billion more people. Folks, this doesn't compute. There have been previous scares about population, starting with Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb, concerns about overshooting the, the Earth's capacity. Technology came along and, and solved the day. And so what, what do you say to people who say, well, whether it's GMO crops or some new technologies or growing corn in Canada, we will adapt and we will feed the number of people that are coming along? Norman Borlaug was the head of the Green Revolution, who is credited with saving more human lives than any single person on Earth because he staved off the certain famines that were about to occur in India and Pakistan, which is the first place the Green Revolution was tried out. But as a result, India is about to surpass China during the coming decade as the most populous nation on Earth, and Pakistan, close to 200 million Pakistanis right now in a country the size of Texas, which has 26 million, and they can't employ you know, these young men that they have, and it's a breeding ground for terrorism, and it happens to be a nuclear power. Norman Borlaug himself, when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, he said that we have postponed a problem that we can only solve if we couple it with population control. And he spent the rest of his life on the board of population groups because he knew that the more food we produced, that would drive population upward. It's too much of a good thing. Malcolm Potts? Uh, We're very focused on the Sahel at the present moment, and that's that area below the Sahara Desert that is dry and dusty and goes from the Atlantic to the Red Sea. In 1950, there were 30 million people. Today, there's 125 million people. And in 2050, which isn't all that far away, there'll be 325 million people. The temperature won't rise by 2 degrees. It will probably by, you know, 4 or 6 degrees, because this is already a very hot place. And so you'll have more people than live in the United States of America watching their crops wither and their cattle die. And those people will either die or migrate or they'll be involved in conflict and literally kill one another. And I think all three things will happen. The third largest town in Kenya, after Nairobi and Mombasa, is a refugee camp. And those are refugees from Somalia and Ethiopia. And that's going to be multiplied many, many times. Now, again, there are solutions which begin with offering family planning. Many of these areas are polygamous and there's a lot of girl marriage. If you can put up the age of marriage by five years, you cut the birth rate by 25% without even a contraceptive. Some people say that it's a foregone conclusion that world population will get to 9 or 10 billion. So let's talk about whether that's inevitable or those curves can be bent. Well, Uh, some additional population growth is inevitable because uh, take China. China now has fewer than two children on average. But the population of China still goes up by about 7 million more births than deaths each year because of what we call demographic momentum. The women that were born a generation ago are now having children. The UN Population Division projects population to the end of this century. And their projection for 2100 is about 9 or 10 billion people. But if on average you have half a child more, there'll be 15.8 billion people, which would be totally unsustainable. If you, on average, have half a child less, there'll be 6.2 billion, which might be a tolerable world that you could sustain. 
And those are decisions we have to make now. We're talking about condoms and climate at Climate One. Our guests are Alan Weissman, author of Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, and Malcolm Potts, professor of population and family planning at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Alan Weissman, this is not a conversation that a lot of people like to have. They say that's not our issue. We don't like to talk about it. It's a nasty political social issue. So why don't we like to talk about population? Every nation, tribe, etc., starts out with a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And the reason for that, of course, is that you want to be bigger and stronger than the competitive nation or competitive tribe next door. You know, the Israelites in the Bible were polygamous to fill up that land and to outcompete the Canaanites. Though a Talmudic scholar pointed out to me that after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with their multiple wives and offspring and all those begets, then you get to Joseph. He's one of Jacob's 13 children, who might be the first ecologist in recorded history that we have because he was very observant and he realized that we were going to be entering a time of scarcity. So he has just one wife and only two children, and he counsels the Pharaoh of Egypt and the Israelites that in order to save themselves, this is not a time to expand. This is a time, so to speak, to reframe from embracing so much. And frankly, we're in a situation like that again You don't have to change people's minds, say you're wrong. Show them that there are examples in their history where they have done exactly the right thing. Malcolm Potts, why is there sort of awkward reluctance to talk about population? We're a very unusual animal. We use sex both to express love and we use sex to conceive children. And the curious thing about it, which separates us from, shall we say, chimpanzees, is that we're very shy about it. We do it in private. We do it in dark. If we were a group of chimpanzees, there'd be probably somebody having sex out there, and they'd be absolutely shocked by the fact we were sharing food. But, you know, the good news about Family Planet is it's something that's wanted. National Condom Week always has a competition for what is the best condom couplet. And the one I remember is this. Use a condom, and you will learn no deposit, no return. Now, the important thing is that the person next to you laughed. Not that you laughed, but the person next to you is the same. The person next to you has exactly the same opinions about sex being a wonderful, beautiful, and loving thing, and not to be shy and stupid about it. So if we bring a bit of humor into this, I think we'll we'll help everybody make make comfortable. Alan Weissman? We are part of the most abnormal population explosion in the history of biology. I mean, there's never been anything like it. But because we think it's normal, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to grasp that there's something wrong. It just looks like what we're used to. To make contraception universally available, it's been calculated that it would cost about a little over $8 billion per year. Now, the United States was spending that amount of money per month for the last decade in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is exceedingly affordable. For every dollar spent within about five years, there's three dollars saved. I mean, family planning is not a cost, it's an investment. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. You talked about educating women, young girls, as being a solution to the problem. However, say you get very successful along that lines of educating women, wouldn't they want to then have more of an American lifestyle, hence a larger carbon footprint. Educated girls want iPads. Alan Weissman. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, isn't the problem really consumption? You know, it's not population. And it's obviously both. And we don't even have to wait for those girls to get educated to start being demanders of electricity. More and more people are moving to cities. And even in the poorest cities that I went to, poor people are finding a way to get cell phones, even kids. The electricity may be pirated, but they're plugging in those chargers every night, just like you and me, and that's sending more carbon dioxide up the chimney. Let's have our next audience question at Climate One. Welcome. What's a sustainable population that's comfortably for the Earth? Alan Weissman. One and a half billion to two billion. Now, that was the population of the world in 1900, and we had a pretty robust world back then. We had great inventions coming up. The Wright brothers came up with airplanes. Somebody in a debate said to me, but yeah, but if we control population, you know, that next kid, that could be the next Mozart. 
And I said, well, you know, when the last Mozart was born, there were less than a half a billion people on the planet. And somehow, we had a critical mass of intellectual activity. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. As a youth, I would hope to see this population growth change, and I hope to be alive to see it. What sort of time frame do you see for this? And what sort of consequences do you see if there aren't enough younger people to support older people who may be more in need of support? Malcolm Potts. Every year, a science-based industry makes more stuff with fewer people. We make more large SUVs with robots than we used to make with more people. And there's unemployment in Europe. There's unemployment in, in America. So I think we should get away from this nationalistic idea that we have to have more people, and there's something threatening about a slowly falling population. I think that's, that's, that's nonsense. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. Um, my name is Nina Harpel. I'm a student at Foothill. Um, so... If healthcare is like decreasing the mortality rate, how do we deal with our current uh, population control if lives are being prolonged? Alan Weissman? Give just one example. Bill and Melinda Gates have been very concerned about malaria and HIV, and they have devoted a lot of funding to try to eradicate them in the world. And of course, we all want that to happen. If you've ever seen the ravages of either, you pray that they will succeed. But in recent years, the Gateses have come to understand that solving one problem is going to exacerbate another on a stressed and stretched planet. So their foundations is number one in trying to fund family planning, and this is exactly what we have to do. Let's go to the next question. Welcome to Climate One. I'm Rebecca Thompson. I'm from the San Francisco Waldorf High School. And with the growing population obviously affecting the climate, we're having some really weird weather. So what kind of physical effects and changes to the U.S. climate can we see after this current polar vortex? Alan Weissman? Niger, uh, a Sahel nation. When I went there, village after village, people would say to me the same thing. they say, if you had been here 25 years ago, you couldn't have seen that house over there. It was about 100 meters off because of all the trees we used to have. And I said, what happened to the trees? Well, you know, we cut them because, you know, more of us need them for firewood. And now trees aren't growing back because we used to have this 10-year drought cycle, and then it became a five-year drought cycle, and then it became a three-year drought cycle, and now we're in the fourth year of the three-year drought cycle. And we're in uncharted territory now. And I think that we can ride this thing out, but not if we keep putting carbon dioxide up there. And this is one of the best ways that I know to start diminishing our use of fossil fuels by diminishing the number of users. Let's have our last question. Welcome to Climate One. You know, I'm from the generation where uh, progress is our most important product. And I remember in your book that you said that in order to get our economies level that we need to have a stable state economy, but it seems like if we're controlling people in a stable state economy that I'm going to have to give up some of my freedom. So I was wondering if you could comment on that. Alan Weisman? Your freedom doesn't have to go anywhere. I tackled the economic question by going to Japan, which is one of the first countries on earth that is really dealing with a shrinking population. By the middle of the century, it's going to be approaching its 1950 population again. And many Japanese economists are terrified by that because they say, you know, we're not going to be able to keep growing economically. But I met an economist named Akihiko Matsutani who sees this as an opportunity. And he says, wages are not going to drop. The country's GDP is going to be shrinking, but people are going to earn pretty much the same only as demand drops when there are fewer people demanding and fewer people putting carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, I would add. They're going to simply cut working hours, so people are going to have more leisure time. And the definition of prosperity is going to be more about quality of life than quantity of stuff. Now, this is not a bad vision of the future. We've been discussing growing population and rising greenhouse gases with Alan Weissman, author of Countdown and Berkeley professor Malcolm Potts. You're listening to Climate One. The 
Latino population is growing by leaps and bounds, and it's changing the face of America. Living in some of the poorest and most polluted neighborhoods, they're often aware of the effects that environmental policies have on our lives. To discuss some of the environmental perspectives of Latinos, I'm joined by Catherine Sandoval, Commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission. She's the first Latina to serve on the commission in its 100-year history and the first Latina to be a Rhodes Scholar. With me also is Orson Aguilar, Executive Director of the Greenlining Institute and Advocacy Group, and Adriana Quintero, a Senior Attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Here's our conversation about green Latinos. Natural Resources Defense Council did a poll that shows some interesting results about what Latino residents think about the environment. What was surprising or interesting in that poll? Adriana Quintero. The importance of the growing Latino community was really reflected in this poll. When nine out of every 10 Latinos surveyed said that they support taking action to fight climate change. Those are enormous numbers. This crossed party lines, it crossed gender lines, it even crossed income lines. Latinos across the board even on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. I wonder where those Republicans are. That's not the typical Republican voices we're seeing. So are they hiding? (laughs) You know, it was 68% of all Republican Latinos surveyed said they were very, very concerned. That's a huge number. So what that said to us was climate change was not as much a political issue as what we normally make it out to be. It was about protecting family members. It was about thinking about the ties that bind us to people in other parts of the world. Catherine Sandoval, is that because they're closer to the sources of pollution, they're closer to it? National surveys show Latino children have higher rates of asthma than all other children. And the number one predictor of asthma is how close you live to freeways. So I think that we're seeing Latinos polling so highly for climate change because there is a visceral experience with the local experience. They're very concerned about this, both in its local impacts and and its global implications. Orson Aguilar? I think about my memories, and one is smog days. We all would dare each other to take a deep breath on those days. You would end up coughing, but actually hurting your chest. Mm -hmm. Latinos are like any other Americans. They want good job that doesn't kill you. Uh, they want you know, good education for their kids. They want a safe community. Same priorities that other Americans have cared about. And I think we're starting to see that Senator Kevin DeLeon, for example, who is now the Senate pro tem, is a clear champ of this stuff. Driving resources to make our communities cleaner, but to also make sure that the jobs are there. Our minority businesses getting a fair share of the contracts. Who's getting hired for this? Not just the carbon question, but who is going to get the jobs? Because You know, there's a win-win here. Better economic indicators follow better environmental indicators. Let's pick up on jobs, because green-collar jobs were supposed to be a great promise to communities. They were blue-collar jobs that could not be exported to China. By definition, were local installation jobs, putting on solar, retrofitting homes. Has that promise been realized? Kathy Sandoval? Uh, We do see jobs coming through energy efficiency installation, but I think that we have a lot more opportunity. You know, uh, a lot of lighting generates heat, which generates the need for air conditioning, um, makes your refrigerator cycle more. And if you could attack some of that, it could be a cost-effective way to be able to help people reduce their bills, not just for lighting, but for air conditioning and for refrigeration. And therefore, we have to build less polluting power plants so it can create a virtuous cycle. And there's one program that allows basically a, a certain amount of copay from the state if you do this list of measures. However, the problem is it focuses on homeowners, not renters, and the starting copay for that program is $10,000. So, you know, few are Latino or African American or uh, Hmong or, you know, many of our other diverse communities. So, Part of what we're trying to look at is how can we really reach the diversity of people so that we can look at the entire picture. So let's get to that implied elitism, which Kathy's talking about, that environmental policy, as she just described, and some of the organizations such as NRDC and others have been geared toward people who are driving their Range Rovers to the second house in Tahoe. Adriana Quintero. The environmental movement, it really started as a very white, middle-class, highly educated group of individuals out there fighting for the planet. And so at this point, what we have to do is change the conversation so that we are actually talking 
in a voice that's much more inclusive, in a way that people can understand and relate it to their lives, not simply are you driving your Prius to Whole Foods and you know, buying your $12 light bulb. That's out of reach for many people, even for young people. And we see the opportunity and the need to truly mobilize communities and allow them to step in and speak their story. Tell us why it's important to you, whether it's because you grew up in a very polluted neighborhood or because you really believe that our country can do it. It's important for us to make sure that those voices are heard by our decision makers. And right now, I really believe that the environmental movement, the mainstream environmental movement, has that squarely in their sights. Who are some of the leaders, other than yourselves here, who are some people that you think we'll be hearing more about in the next five or ten years? Most of our Latino leaders right now have a keen awareness that this is an important issue for the community. Whether you're talking about Raul Grijalva, who's a congressman from Arizona and has been committed to conservation and environmental issues for his entire life, or you're talking about somebody who is at the city level. And then I think when we look at our heroes... Kathy Sandoval? I look at people like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who part of the farm worker movement was about the toxics and the chemicals. And, and I think that that is also a facet of the environmental movement that, you know, we, we think of Cesar and Dolores as farm leader workers, but they were also important environmental leaders. Orson Aguilar, most Latinos are conservationists. And I think the question is, is it something cultural? Is it something in our DNA? Or have we been forced to conserve given our economic circumstances. I look at my parents growing up. My mom took the bus every day for 30 years, had a transfer. She hated that. She was not doing that out of the goodness of her heart. She was doing that because she couldn't afford a car. And as soon as she was able to get a car, she dumped that bus. And I ride the bus in my community in East Oakland, and I see the folks there would rather not be on that bus. The bus is late, it's crowded, it's dirty. They're not doing it because they're trying to help the polar bear or their kids, quite frankly. They're doing it out of necessity. Our communities, frankly, they earn to be Sierra Club members, right? They want to have the house in the suburbs, two cars in the driveway. They want to have time to actually participate in civic activities, have disposable income to pay a membership fee. I think, frankly, that scares the mainstream environmentalists because when more of our communities become Sierra Club members, they could also become bigger polluters. And we see more Indians you know, now being able to afford AC for the first time ever. Same in China. There's a lot of fear with that because they're sucking up resources to have the basic comfort that we have here. You know, We're here talking about the environment, but inequality is this big theme that impacts everything. And in fact, even the word environmentalists, I've seen some interesting things that say mm-hmm. Latinos identify more with the word conservation than with environmentalism. And I was talking to one of my Latina amigas who was saying, well, conservation goes better with the word conserva, to conserve, that connotes not only use less, but there's a, a consciousness mm-hmm. about conservation, whereas environmentalism, the environment is el ambiente, and there's no word as ambienteism, that makes no sense. So it's about the conciencia of conserving. We're talking about Green Latinos at Climate One. Our guests are Catherine Sandoval, a commissioner with the California Public Utilities Commission, Orson Aguilar, executive director of the Greenlining Institute, and Adriana Quintero, a senior attorney with Natural Resources Defense Council. I'm Greg Dalton. Adriana Quintero, let's get you on that, because environmentalists, it's a very loaded term. There's lots of baggage, and lots of people might hold the values, but they would bristle at the term or the identity of being an environmentalist. Do you see that? I do see it. I think that it's it's very charged politically. Part of why Latinos identify with conservation is because some of the environmental groups that they identify with are the, the more... Um, the, Self-righteous? The, well, or I, I, I would say the... The more visible, and you know what, you've got to get, you've got to cross the line sometimes to make change. But I think that for many people, that's that's very scary. They don't want to identify with militaristic environmentalists. They want to identify with a culture of conservation. I do believe that what we're learning about the community is going to teach us a lot about how we even deal 
with women, uh, with our membership. When you're looking at conservation, it automatically tells you what this is about, what you need, what, what, what they're asking you to do, conserve. And conserve is different than limit or deprive yourself. It's more about keeping what you have in, in a certain state of goodness and, and pleasantness. But when you look at the traditional environmentalist model, it's really been about the vision of the, the lone hiker in the woods, all by himself. There's nothing else around and these pristine forests. From a Latino perspective, it's about let me get 25 of my closest friends and go out and let's have a picnic on the beach or on that same hiking trail where that guy wants to go and be alone. Let's be there. And let's love the trees and appreciate nature, but let's do this in a different way. Frankly, I don't think that even the image of the lone hiker resonates very much with most women. I do want to go with my two children. And I want to show them the birds, and I want to teach them, and I want us to be able to enjoy this together. So I think that that resonates with a lot of mothers, a lot of women, who also think of this as how can I conserve my planet as a place that I can share with my children, with my family, with future generations. So does that mean the NRDC logo is going to go from that polar bear to some people cooking a barbecue? (laughs) Kathy Sandoval. When we talk about Latinos and conservation, it's about people, not polar bears. You know, when you look at polls of Latinos, uh, things like parks will poll as incredibly important. Okay, And, and Yosemite is a very important park, but I'm talking about your local park where people can go because they don't have backyards, you know, and they can have a barbecue, they can have a birthday party, and be able to have a place where they're out in green space. Having those types of community parks can also help to address those different drivers of inequality. I want to ask you how you respond to a climate denier. Someone says, ah, that's a conspiracy, or that's not happening, or the weather's always changing, or I don't believe in that. What I like to say is, let's forget about whether or not climate change is the issue and look at all of the opportunities we have here. We have opportunities to change the the way that we've done things. Why stick with fossil fuels when we have all of this new potential? I mean, look at the cell phone. Would we still be carrying our big bricks? No, we don't want it. Nobody wants that. We want, you know, the latest iPhone. It's the same thing. We don't want to be burning coal like, you know, we've done since the Industrial Revolution. We want to be doing something better. We want to show that we're progressing. To me, that's the only conversation to have there. Let's include our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Jose Gonzalez, a green Chicano, green Latino, founder of Latino Outdoors. So if you're engaging a recent immigrant community, an established Hispano community, a Puerto Rican community, Dominican, Cuban who will might prefer to go by nationality, by different uh, ethnic markers and language. So what have you found about the framing, the messaging, how you navigate that, knowing the challenge of climate messaging, environmental messaging in general, but then also the challenge of the diversity of communities within the term Latino? Adriana Quintero? It's a matter of trying to speak in a way that will resonate with the majority. What are those ties that bind us culturally beyond a language? And not assuming that we have an identically shared heritage. It's more about recognizing that we do have some things in common. We do probably all, no matter where we fall on the socioeconomic ladder, remember our abuelita, our grandmother, who... You know, I mean, the foil paper, I remember her cleaning it off until the day she died because we got to use that again. And that gets handed down. This deep cultural lean towards conservation and towards the family unit, and the family unit not being the four people who are around your dinner table, but the 40 people around oftentimes around your dinner table, but also beyond your dinner table. So even that's, I think that's where we find the common ground. Let's have our next question on Climate One. Enrique Gallardo, my question is, there's been some discussion of the kind of the conflict between improving your economic condition and then that increases your, your carbon footprint. So as you gain more money, you can afford a car, you can afford air conditioning. Is there a way to kind of incentivize conservation and especially for people who are naturally conservationists, people who are lower income? I think that's a great frame for us to pursue solutions to this, because if we can tackle it through that frame, I think we're going to get there a lot faster. 
clearly delinking carbon emissions and economic growth in a macro sense is what needs yeah. to happen because mm -hmm. those yeah. people are going to come out of poverty in India and China, et cetera, and they're going to grow dirty or grow clean, and that has big impacts. Here in California, uh, we're moving to eliminate the plastic bag when you go to the grocery store. But I remember in, in the 70s going to, to Mexico and people were bringing their bolsa to the market, uh, their bag. And this is like, uh, you know, we get these ideas, oh, we're new, we're hip, we're banning plastic bags. But it's something that they've been doing in Latin America for centuries. We need some of our grandmother's virtues. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Eduardo Benavides. I'm an international student from Costa Rica. As Costa Ricans, we believe a lot in sustainable development more than uh, conservation. And my question is that, what is the uh, Green Latinos movement regarding making a government proposal in moving towards renewable energy sources more quickly? Is it moving fast enough? Clearly it's not. Um, but I think I would say it's starting to happen, and trying to figure out how we plug in people like you would be great. Let's have our last question at Climate One. Welcome. My name is Alex Alzagre. Many of the comments that you have uh, provided have been rooted in personal experience from the home. What's the role of the Latino as a business uh, leader uh, in the environmental community? How many Latino executives, you know, business leaders are there? And, you know, frankly, I looked at some of the top solar companies and didn't find any Latinos on the board. There are a few, but I think that's the next place we need to go to. There are clearly a lot of civic leaders, elected officials, and it hasn't quite yet translated to the business community. It's starting to, and there are some examples, um, but those are still very far and few between. Through our initiative, Voces Verdes, we have focus exclusively on trying to identify Latino leaders in sustainable business, in energy, in climate. And what we find is a lot of people who are really engaged in energy audits, in energy efficiency retrofits, um, and more and more so in the renewable energy space. We need to do much better. And, and our hope is to, again, raise those people who are there as role models so that we create that pipeline. But we're getting there. We have been discussing green ideas and actions of Latinos in America with Catherine Sandoval of the California Public Utilities Commission, Orson Aguilar, Executive Director of the Greenlining Institute, and Adriana Quintero, Senior Attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you for joining us this hour. Free podcasts of these and other Climate One conversations are available in the iTunes Store by searching Climate One. Video clips and transcripts are available at climate-one.org. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. Our audio engineer is Will Llewellyn and editor is Claire Schoen. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.